Good morning. It's, uh, it's good to be with you this morning as we uh, yet again go back to God's word for encouragement and for sustenance. And as we get started this morning, I want to give you a little bit of a behind-the-scenes look into my mind. Uh, I have this recurring dream that happens you know, with relative frequency, you know, maybe once a month or so. And here, here's the dream. It's Sunday morning, and I'm scheduled to preach, and for some reason, I am horribly behind. Uh, I, I show up at church. I don't have my microphone on. I have no idea where my sermon manuscript is. Uh, for some reason, the church service has already started. People are singing. Someone started the service without me. Uh, and so I'm running around trying to figure out what's going on. And then by the time I get up to the pulpit to preach, I find out to my dismay that the sermon's only halfway finished. And so I don't even know what I'm going to say. It's time for me to open my mouth, but I am not ready at all. It's always a great relief to me when I wake up from dreams like this. You know, that wonderful feeling of, oh, that was just a dream. How nice. Because dreams like that are incredibly stressful. I'm sure that if we took a poll, we all could raise our hands and have some version of this dream tailored to your individual experiences. Uh, for some of you, maybe the dream, in the dream you're a student again, or a student now, and you realize that it's finals week, and you're scheduled to have a final for a class that you never knew you were enrolled in, but you have to take a test, and you're not ready at all. Maybe for others of you, your, your dream is a presentation at work or something like that, except no one told you you needed to have a presentation ready. And so you show up, and everyone's looking at you, but yet again, you're not ready. That's the theme of all of these dreams. Why are these dreams so stressful? Well, they're stressful because being unprepared is scary. It's a scary thing to be unprepared. Just ask anyone who tried to buy toilet paper or flour or any other household provision back in April when you see empty shelves at home, and then you go to the store and you see even more empty shelves, it's scary. And you start to wonder. You have this strange internal dialogue. I wonder if I'm going to be able to find any of these things again. Will I ever be able to get any more of the things that I need? Being unprepared is scary. We don't like feeling out of control. We don't like being unable to do anything about it. And I think that's why so many people make a bunch of money trying to sell us preparedness. Maybe it's the opportunity to have a large stock of certain items, to have a pantry full of canned goods for an entire year. Maybe it's a class in survival skills to help you if you encounter any kind of crazy scenario or situation. Or maybe it's the assurance, the promise of having someone to help protect your belongings and pay for them in the case of a disaster. Insurance companies play on our lack of control by promising that when disaster strikes, you'll be in good hands. Someone will be on your side and they'll be to you like a good neighbor. Now, these companies aren't just trying to sell us goods and services. They're trying to sell us the feeling of security. They're doing something on an almost religious, spiritual basis, trying to make us feel secure. Well, God cares about our feeling of security as well. 
And this morning, in the text that we're going to read together from Ecclesiastes 6 and 7, God is interested in seeing where we go to find that feeling of security, where we go to meet this fear of feeling unprepared. So this morning, we're going to face a couple of questions that we'll ask ourselves throughout this text. How can godly people prepare for life in an uncertain world? Will we attempt to find security through worldly preparations, or is there a more wise way for us to be prepared? Let's find out together as we look to God's word to teach us. Let's hear his word now. His holy, infallible word that can instruct us even in the midst of uncertainty. His word never changes. We're going to be in Ecclesiastes chapter 6, picking up in verse 10, uh, going through chapter 7, verse 14. Please hear with me God's word. Whatever has come to be has already been named. And it is known what man is. And that he is not able to dispute with one stronger than he. The more words, the more vanity. And what is the advantage to man? For who knows what is good for man? While he lives the few days of his vain life, which he passes like a shadow. For who can tell man what will be after him under the sun? A good name is better than precious ointment. And the day of death than the day of birth. It is better to go to the house of mourning than to go to the house of feasting. For this is the end of all mankind, and the living will lay it to heart. Sorrow is better than laughter. For by sadness of face, the heart is made glad. The heart of the wise is in the house of mourning, but the heart of fools is in the house of mirth. It is better for a man to hear the rebuke of the wise than to hear the song of fools. For as the crackling of thorns under a pot, so is the laughter of the fools. This also is vanity. Surely oppression drives the wise into madness, and a bribe corrupts the heart. Better is the end of the thing than its beginning, and the patient in spirit is better than the proud in spirit. Be not quick in your spirit to become angry, for anger lodges in the bosom of fools. Say not, why were the former days better than these? For it is not from wisdom that you ask this. Wisdom is good with an inheritance, an advantage to those who see the sun. For the protection of wisdom is like the protection of money, and the advantage of knowledge is that wisdom preserves the life of him who has it. Consider the work of God. Who can make straight what he has made crooked? In the day of prosperity, be joyful. And in the day of adversity, consider. God has made the one as well as the other, so that man may not find out anything that will be after him. Brothers and sisters, uh, thus far in the reading of God's word, the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of the Lord will stand forever. Father, uh, this morning we need your word. Uh, We need your strength. As we come into your presence this morning, many of us are buffeted by things that are outside of our control. And so we look to you as the unchangeable God to prepare us for life in this uncertain world. Root out sin. Root out the things in our heart that we look to for protection other than you. And we pray that as we hear your word preached this morning, you would sanctify us. 
and that you would illuminate this challenging word to us this morning. Give us comfort this morning. Lord, give us grace. We pray in the name of Christ. Amen. If being unprepared makes us nervous, makes us uncomfortable, then the sage, the writer of Ecclesiastes, zeroes right on in and puts his finger exactly on the thing that makes us uncomfortable. He is so good at doing this, as we've seen time and time again in Ecclesiastes. He can put his finger right on the sore spot of our lives, naming the things that we do not really want him to name out loud. And that's what he does this morning. We hear in our text, the sage names three, tr- three hard truths about our lives that we would prefer uh, to ignore, to look past. Here's the first painful reality that the sage names. Life is uncertain, and we feel out of control. Life is uncertain, and we feel out of control. How many of us struggle to make plans because we don't know what the future holds? How many of us struggle to keep plans because nine times out of ten, something changes? Sure, we might have some good days, some days where things do go according to plan, but even those good days, when we are 100% on top of our schedule, it doesn't guarantee that the future will be predictable, will be certain, that we'll be successful in keeping our plans. If you want a good Kind of humorous example, you can laugh at my expense on this. Just go back and pull out that piece of paper if you still have it. I passed out a piece of paper at the January uh, congregational meeting. It was my 2020 ministry plan. It was a good plan, let me tell you. But I had no idea when we started the year how much of that plan would become irrelevant within just a couple of months. It's like that with all of us. We have examples of this, things that we try, uh, things that we try to keep control of. But again, there is no way that we have that strength and power. Now, the, the real truth is that we've never been in control. We, we might pretend to be in control. We might imagine that we're in control, but we never have been. And COVID has only hammered home that biblical truth. We hear it in our text. It's the first verse of our text. Whatever has come to be has already been named, been named by someone else. And it is known what man is. What is man? Someone very humble and unpowerful. Here's what man is. He is not able to dispute with one stronger than he. This verse says that the only person who controls the future is God. God's the one who names the future. And we can't fight him for control of it. It's like me getting in a wrestling match with Hulk Hogan. I'm going to lose every single time. It's like that when we try to wrestle with God for control. If we try to resist, we are overcome by him. And apparently this is God's sovereign organization of the world. This is his plan. He set up the world this way as we hear in the last verse of our text. In the day of prosperity, be joyful. In the day of adversity, consider God has made the one as well as the other so that man may not find out anything that will be after him. God seems content to keep us on our toes. There's a reason for that, but we're going to get to that in a little bit. For now, it's enough for us to sit in the painful truth that we all know deep down, life is uncertain and we feel out of control. Here's the second hard reality that the text names. Death is guaranteed and we can't stop it. 
Death is guaranteed, and we can't stop it. Just like Captain Hook is haunted by the ticking clocks all around him because of the alligator that is coming to get him, we are haunted by our own sense of a giant ticking clock. The biblical scholar Dan Leoy compares, uh, he says that death is the great checkmate of life. The great checkmate of life is the end game that we cannot escape. It's certain that unless Jesus comes back quickly, all of us are going to die. For believers, of course, we have the assurance of life after death. We have the assurance of eternal life with Christ, but this doesn't change the bitterness of death or the mystery of death. We might long to know the circumstances of our deaths, how much time we have left on this earth, but God doesn't give us that as much as we would like. All we have is the unchangeable reality that we will die. It's like a curtain that hangs over the end of our lives. We can see it, but we can't see through it. Here, verse six, or chapter 6, verse 12, who knows what is good for man while he lives the few days of his vain life which he passes like a shadow. For who can tell man what will be after him? Likewise, we hear the last verse of our text again. God does these things so that man may not find out anything that will be after him. If we zoom out on this passage a little bit, you don't really get it up there. But if you're looking at it in a Bible the way that I am, you see that the the text, these hard texts act like bookends. Uh, on the, the chapter that we're reading. There's a bunch of Proverbs in the middle that tell us how to live wisely, but on the end of those Proverbs for wise life in uncertain times, there are these hard truths that bind them in. Life is uncertain. Death is guaranteed. Well, we don't like that, do we? That's a hard message for us to hear. Like I said, being unprepared is scary. Also, I think there's the reality that in all of us, there's this lingering existence of eternity in our souls deep down that makes us rebel against the idea of uncertainty and death. The seeds of Eden are still implanted in our souls, and we long for that stability, that endurance that we had in the beginning before the fall. But how do we handle that longing? What do we do when we're faced with such a tragic truth? Well, we tend to double down on the sins of Adam and Eve, trying to become like God by equipping ourselves with every possible defense against uncertainty and death, either by accumulating enough wealth to weather every storm, investing ourselves in the latest life extension programs, looking for explanations to help us understand every twist and turn in our story to prevent it from happening again. But this just leads to a third painful reality that our text names. Our worldly attempts to find a sense of peace and security, they fail. They fail to give us security and only they only leave us oversupplied and underprepared. Oversupplied, underprepared. Imagine that you're going camping with a friend and you show up at the friend's house, you're driving, and the friend loads your car with every conceivable gadget to face every possible scenario. There is something for if it gets too hot. There's something for if it gets too cold. There's the latest in campfire technology so that your food is going to be luxury. There's maybe even something to enjoy a campfire latte to start the day. Maybe even on a timer. Something you don't even need to get up for and it starts. But when you get to the campsite, 
Your friend has never read the instructions. Doesn't know how to operate any of these things. There's not any know-how to deal with any of these possible scenarios. The nice tent doesn't get set up properly, and so it leaks. The fire never gets lit because there was not the know-how to stack the wood properly or select the right wood. And so what happens is that you and your friend get incredibly frustrated. You end up stuffing all of the gear back into the car, driving to a local hotel to spend the night, eating at a local restaurant, and then driving home the next day in bewildered defeat. This is what happens when we are oversupplied and underprepared. According to the text, we are oversupplied. We're oversupplied with possessions. The sage has to remind us that a good name is actually better than precious ointment, something valuable because we are so quick to rush to possessions to solve our problems. We're oversupplied with information, trying to protect ourselves against disaster with knowledge. If we could just know a little bit more, if we could understand a little bit more, maybe we could predict the future, prevent some kind of untimely death. But like the sage says, the more words, the more vanity. Just ask the internet for advice on any health question. Just ask the internet how much water should you drink in a day, and you're going to find out that the more words, the more vanity. You're going to get inundated with articles and advice, much of it likely conflicting. We've got too much stuff. We've got too much information, but it does nothing to prepare us. We are underprepared. We are caught off guard when bad things happen, and we don't like the feeling of being out of control, so we ignore the harshness of life. We drown it out with feasts, festivals, and fools. And if this was true back then, it is certainly true of our day and age. Our culture, modern American culture, is the most oversupplied culture in history. Americans consume more, use more, waste more than almost every other country ever. The amount of luxury that almost all of us enjoy on a regular basis compared to the rest of the world and the rest of history is staggering. If we compare our lifestyle to the past, on our average days, we live like kings. Add to that our access of information. It is stunning how much information we have at our fingertips. We Americans stock up on wealth and words like no other. But we are profoundly underprepared for struggle and for death. In our culture, death is sanitized. We try to keep it out of sight, out of mind, and then we sugarcoat it when we're forced to face it. We don't know how to grieve, how to mourn properly. Historically, humans have had long, elaborate, mourning, grieving rituals to help the community navigate loss together, but we've lost almost all of those in our culture. At best, when tragedy strikes, most of us just have to take one or two weeks of leave to try and deal with affairs, but that's not enough time for a soul to mend. We don't know how to talk about hard things together. We block out painful emotions through binging on comedy shows and food, entertainment, recreational drugs. We, in America, constantly live in the house of feasting, entertained by the song of fools. There's a deep irony here, of course, because as many people have noted, modern American culture is actually a culture of death. 
There's so much dehumanization in our culture, so much violence. It's a culture of death that's actually terrified of death. And so we are completely unprepared. And this leaves us very, very fragile. We're like the friend on the camping trip. And it would be comical if it weren't so awful. So throughout this text, God calls us out. God calls us out this morning through his word. He chastens us by reminding us that life is uncertain. Death is guaranteed. And our worldly attempts to find safety and security leave us frustrated, leave us bewildered. Now, it's all vanity. And deep down, I think we know it. And so, this morning, allow God to chasten you with his word. If you see areas in your life where you have sought worldly solutions to this deeper spiritual need, repent of those, and then turn back to God. God loves us enough to discipline us, to show us where we are weak and where we need him. And he loves us enough to offer us a better way. In this text, not only, in, not only just calling us out, but he is offering us his hand to teach us his program for wise preparation. When I had knee surgery a few years ago, I learned that running isn't as easy as just strapping on some shoes, uh, maybe limbering up just a little bit, and then going out on a run. To be conditioned for running, to run in a healthy way, you need strength and flexibility in several key muscle groups. And so in order to get back to running, I needed a program. In order for us to weather life in this chaotic world, we need God's program for wise preparation. This is his workout program for your soul that he gives us in his text this morning. First, persevere in faith. Persevere in the faith. Like I said earlier, God keeps us on our toes. On the surface, when we read the text, this makes God seem cold and uncaring. Like we heard in the passage, he is the strong man that we can't contend with. He makes things crooked and we can't do anything about it. In our text, he seems to sort of dole out prosperity and adversity at random. And at times it feels that way, doesn't it? When suffering strikes us, or when we pray for God to quickly intervene and he doesn't, We can be tempted to think that God doesn't care, tempted to believe that he has abandoned us, tempted to believe that Christianity is really just a bunch of nonsense if it doesn't work. But maybe, just maybe, God keeps us on our toes to draw us to him. Verse 13 in the text invites us to consider the work of God. And then verse 14 of the text tells us what that work is. God orchestrates events so that man cannot find out anything that will be after him. And then we go back to the question in chapter 6, verse 12. Who can tell man what will be after him under the sun? Well, we just found out that humans can't. None of us can. Is there anyone that can? Well, God can. God has the access to this knowledge God and his sovereignty allows us to experience adversity so that we will turn to him. So we'll turn to him for comfort, turn to him for wisdom and understanding. In his redemptive hands, adversity is a kindness. It draws us to Christ. For Christians, what comes after this suffering life? 
eternal life in glory. Jesus Christ, the Son of God, suffered, died, and was raised up for us and for our salvation. And this changes the way that we interact with the present moment, and it recasts our future. The Apostle Paul writes in Colossians 3, For you have died. Right now, you, in Christ, you've died. And your life is now hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. That's what comes after this life, dear friends. God uses our suffering in this life to draw our eyes toward our future glory. This truth doesn't paper over the pain, but I think it reframes and recasts the way that we can experience that pain. In faith, we see that our trials are a gift. And so persevere in faith. Persevere in the faith. Second, in God's program for wise preparation, ponder your fragility. Ponder your fragility. One of the best ways to prepare for uncertainty is to consider your limited time on earth. Verses 2 through 6 encourage us to spend time thinking about death. It's better to go to the house of mourning. Sorrow's better than laughter. The heart of the wise is in the house of mourning. As repulsive as this sounds, it's actually very freeing, very motivating for us to consider our frailty. When we spend time with death, we begin to appreciate life. Every day appears as a gift, something that we shouldn't take for granted, something that we didn't know we would receive. When every meal isn't a feast, then the actual feasts are more delightful. They seem much more decadent to us. Our days are limited. Only fools ignore or deny this. And so if I'm not guaranteed tomorrow, I approach my work today with greater clarity with an urgency to do the most important things, not wasting my valuable, limited time on folly, on vanity. Thinking about death helps us to live with purpose and with gratitude. It also helps to clarify our faith, because thinking about death brings our mind to life after death. For non-believers, after death, there is judgment. And so if you are listening this morning and you do not trust in Christ, I urge you to consider your death and contemplate life after death. At death, we meet with God, and God will judge. We confessed it already in song. We'll see him at the judgment seat. And none of us, none of us are prepared for that judgment by ourselves. None of us can stand up to his critique alone. And so, if you do not trust in Christ, please turn to him. Trust in him to avoid the coming judgment. Let the thought of death drive you to seek forgiveness, to seek mercy. Ask God to forgive you, and he will. Now, for Christians, death reminds us of that mercy and that forgiveness. When I think of death, I remember that Jesus has power over death. Like we sing in the wonderful hymn, Jesus lives, and death is now but my entrance into glory. So there's great benefit to pondering our fragility. What's one way that you can do that in the coming weeks and months? 
I think fasting is a wonderful way for us to ponder our fragility. Again, we live like kings most of the time. And so fasting connects us with our humility, our humble stature. And so make fasting a part of your spiritual life. Here's how to do it. You declare a day of fasting. I think you you plan for it. You say in advance, I'm going to fast on this day. And then the best way to do it is just to go without breakfast and lunch and use those times to pray. If some of you in your jobs or your health feel like you can't go that long without food, another good way to fast, John Calvin actually encourages fasting in this sense. Go a a simple day of simple foods, uh, bread and water, and just avoid anything that actually tastes great. And so then when you're hungry or when you're longing for flavor, then remind yourself that man does not live on bread alone, but on the very word of God. Remind yourself that God is your real joy, your real strength. Fast to test your heart. Where do you rely more on the things of this world than on God? Fast to remind you of death. This is the word to the wise. It's better to go to the house of mourning than to the house of feasting. Fasting is one way to ponder your fragility. Third, in God's program for wise preparation, live in the present. Live in the present. When we experience suffering, it's so easy for us to long for the past. But like we hear in verse 10, say not, why were the former days better than these? It's not from wisdom that you ask this. There's a few reasons for this. First, longing for the past tends to glorify the past. And we have sort of a rosy vision of what the past was like. We tend to forget how hard things actually were in the past, either for us or for other people. We overlook how other people suffered in the past. This text teaches us that there is never a golden age to look back on. History is always complicated. Don't long for the past when you're suffering. Similarly, longing for the past ignores what God is doing in the present. And we already saw what God's doing in the present. He's lovingly drawing us closer to himself through trials. So if we're persevering in faith, our present struggles are present opportunities for us to savor Christ. Like Samuel Rutherford says, Christ and his cross together are sweet company and a blessed couple. So don't pine for the past. Instead, live in the present. And finally, pray for wisdom. Pray for wisdom. The book of Ecclesiastes is full of tension. Last week, we were told to enjoy life. This week, we're told that sorrow is better than laughter. In the middle of our passage, we're told that the rebuke of the wise is good. But then in verse 7, we hear that the wise can be corrupted. So their words aren't always trustworthy. So life is uncertain. And we need wisdom. So pray for wisdom. Is now a time for feasting or fasting? Ask God for insight. Is this a rebuke coming from a wise person or from someone with an agenda? Ask God for discernment. Pray for wisdom. James 1.5, a book in the New Testament. James says this, 
Chapter 1, verse 5, if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God, who gives generously to all without a reproach, and it will be given him. Such wisdom allows us to navigate hard situations well. After all, like we hear in verse 11, wisdom is good with an inheritance, or maybe a better way to translate that is wisdom is good as an inheritance, an advantage to those who see the sun. Verse 12, wisdom preserves the life of him who has it. Pray for wisdom. This is God's program for wise preparation. And when we are prepared with wisdom, we can come through unexpected trials with our faith intact. What does it look like for us to develop this spiritual workout program, go through this spiritual workout program together? Well, eventually we develop spiritual strength and emotional flexibility. Think of it a little bit like a palm tree. God made palm trees able to withstand an amazing amount of turmoil. I read a little bit about palm trees and found that they have three key features that enable them to withstand the storm. First, they have many roots, uh, a complicated root system that forms a very strong and heavy base. Then, in their trunk, the fibers grow in a straight line, not in concentric rings. And so because they grow in a straight line, they can go and bend in an incredible amount of directions and flexibility without snapping. And then up top, their leaves are long and wavy. And so they can go with the flow of the wind. Also, they are able to repair themselves pretty easily. Well, our lives are filled with all number of unexpected, unpredictable trials. We go through seasons of calm, and then out of nowhere, a storm crops up, and it whips us around. Many of us are in one of those storms even today. In his wisdom, like we hear in the text, God brings that storm to us. But remember why he does it. He does it so that we will draw near to him. And he enables us to weather the storm well. When we persevere in faith, ponder our fragility, live in the present, pray for wisdom, we don't leave oversupplied and underprepared. We gain spiritual strength and emotional flexibility. We come to resemble, spiritually, the humble palm tree. We'll have strong, heavy roots of faith. We'll be rooted in God for our spiritual strength so we won't be blown over or uprooted when trials come our way suddenly. We'll have an emotional flexibility. Now, this means that, doesn't mean that we won't get hurt. Trials will still hurt, but we'll learn to go with the flow of what God is doing instead of resisting what He is doing. We will learn what it means for us to hold close to God while also crying out to God for deliverance. We'll learn how tears of grief can coexist with a godly sense of joy. This is healthy, Christian, emotional flexibility. And then when it seems like in the great wind of the storms, some of our leaves have been ripped off, we can trust that our Heavenly Father will bring us healing. He offers us partial healing now in the present as he mends our hearts and our souls through his spirit, the great comforter. And he offers us total healing in heaven where all of our tears will be wiped away when all of our grief and sorrow will be finally laid to rest. To quote Rutherford again, our little time of suffering. He even says a little inch of suffering is not worthy of our first night's welcome home to heaven. 
being unprepared is scary. So don't get caught off guard. Start your training today. Practice these spiritual habits so that when the day of trial comes, you can stand in faith and experience God's presence with you in the midst of trial and uncertainty. Let's pray. Holy Father, thank you for this word. Thank you for the truth that in Christ we do have a glorious and grand future to look forward to. And thank you that even now our life is hidden with him. We ask that you would save us from the time of trial. That's okay for us to pray. But we also pray that you would keep our faith in the time of trial. When we walk through the valley of the shadow of death, would you be our good shepherd, our comforter, our keeper? Strengthen us, we pray, so that we would withstand all trials and glorify your name. In the name of Christ, amen.